Al Jazeera podcast. Two Palestinian boys shot dead by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. More than 6,000 children killed in Gaza, not counting those still missing or buried under rubble. Around 250 minors in Israeli prisons. Why does Israel target Palestinian children? I'm Fully Batibo, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now for today's show. In Khan Yunis in southern Gaza is Yusuf Hamash, an advocacy officer in the Gaza Strip for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Yusuf is also a resident of Gaza. In Toronto is Tanya Haj Hassan, a pediatric intensive care doctor who has worked in Gaza. She co-founded Gaza Medic Voices, a social media account that shares first-hand testimonies from healthcare workers in the Strip. And in Washington, D.C. is Alex Sayeh, who's the head of humanitarian policy and advocacy at the charity Save the Children. Alex specializes in humanitarian and post-conflict recovery. Thanks to all three of you for joining us on Inside Story on Al Jazeera. Alex from Save the Children, let me start with you. We will, of course, be discussing in great detail uh, the, the plight of children in Gaza and what's been happening to them in this conflict. But I wanted to start with what's happening to children in the occupied West Bank. Two children, including an eight-year-old, killed in broad daylight by Israeli forces. This was caught on camera. It was shocking, shocked many people. Why is this happening? How often is it happening? And how does Israel justify killing an eight-year-old? What happened uh, in the past week and in the past seven weeks has been absolutely awful and catastrophic and horrific. But we need to also take a step back. And this is... What we've seen in the last seven weeks is an amplified version of what children in Gaza and what children in the West Bank and the occupied Palestinian territory as a whole have been experiencing for decades. If you are a 16-year-old in Gaza, you have experienced at least four major escalations, a military blockade where other states dictate when and when you can exit and uh, enter and exit. Mm you have a high likelihood of having at least one family member or um, a, an extended relative or a friend killed. If you are critically injured or, or ill, you are unable to get medical treatment unless you uh, receive a permit from the Israeli government. If you are a 16-year-old in the West Bank, there is a high likelihood that one of your friends or relatives or you yourself has been arrested, detained, or come in contact with the Israeli military. Is there a deliberate may... policy, Alex, by the Israelis to target Palestinian children, whether in Gaza or the occupied West Bank? I think it's safe to say that this is a core part of the Palestinian experience, of the, the experience of a Palestinian child. These policies impact every aspect of a child's life in the occupied Palestinian territory. All right. Yusuf, in Gaza, let me come to you. More than 6,000 children killed in Gaza over these past six weeks, not counting those who are still buried under the rubble. And the images and footage of shell-shocked children being pulled from under the rubble in Gaza or fighting for their lives in, in hospitals in the Gaza Strip that are barely functioning has sadly become commonplace. Can you tell us first who these children are? Because unfortunately and sadly, we talk about them in numbers, but these are children who have stories, who had hopes and who had dreams. 
I agree 100%. They are, we are totally are not numbers. Yani. The Gaza population, almost half of it are children, and they are paying the heavy price of all this madness around them. More than seven weeks, I talk about around 6,000 children have been killed, and definitely they are numbers. Definitely they have dreams, and unfortunately, I agree with our, my colleague. They have seen any child in Gaza have witnessed more than anyone on this planet. Yani. I think they believe, I believe a five years old child, basically, I'm, for example, I'm mentioning my daughter, Elia. She's five years old, and she witnessed, like, scalations or wars more than her age. That's what makes us, yani, if kind of useless in front of, our, in front of our children, cannot provide them with any means of protection. And that's the situation of the whole population here. Yeah, Yusuf, yes. as a father, uh, you are a humanitarian worker, of course, but as a father of young children in Gaza, tell us about what it's been like for you these past eight weeks, for you and your children. What do you tell them? What do they tell you? Yani, again, I was, I was about to mention that. We feel useless in front of our children because we cannot provide them with anything. Yani, I, don't, I, I really hope that anyone cannot be in this situation, feel, feeling useless as a father in front of your children. Imagining my daughter have, can understand the difference between a missile or a tank shell. Yani, that's my, what they witness in their years makes them more experts. And, and this is so unfortunate. Yani, even us as fathers, we cannot find any means of manipulating in front of our children, just trying to make fake, I don't know, fake justifications for them or for what's happening around them. But unfortunately, we cannot succeed more and more with that. It, previously, when my children were young, and I remember 2021 war in Gaza, I was able to convince my little daughter that this is all what you are hearing is thunderstrike or fireworks, but it doesn't work anymore. Our house is shaking since seven weeks. And it's not now. I think I believe any child above five years old understand what's going on around them, understand the mean of war now, understand the, the difference between different types of bombardments. Right. That is extremely sad. Dr. Tanya, let me bring you into the conversation. You've worked in Gaza, you are in constant contact with the medics in Gaza. And you know, one of the fathers that we've interviewed here on Al Jazeera said something very poignant and heartbreaking, and that was he said, It's a curse to be a parent in Gaza. Talk to us about the impact of this particular war. Again, this is not the first conflict, as Yusuf was saying, that some of these children have experienced. Some of them have experienced five conflicts already in their lives. What is the impact of this particular war on Gaza, on the children there? Yeah, thank you very much. Um... You know, in, in our work uh, as pediatricians and particularly as intensive care doctors, we spend a lot of our time with the parents uh, for whom these children are the center of their universe. And one of the things, obviously, that's most important is the parents' ability to protect their children. That is a core part of their identity as a parent. And as Yusuf mentioned, uh, it's really heartbreaking to see parents going through uh, an experience where they cannot provide any of what they see as their role as parents, be it physical protection, shelter, uh, food. These are all things that have been stripped uh, from the ability of parents in Gaza, and it's, it's heartbreaking to see. Mm. And for children, I mean, 
one of the surgeons at the Indonesian hospital said, um, what can I tell you about the injuries we see? They're extremely severe. We start wishing for death for ourselves and the patients because it's more merciful. Uh, children with extremely severe injuries beyond imagination. Hmm. And I want to take a minute just explaining what some of these injuries are like because the children are not only experiencing them, but they're also seeing their loved ones under the rubble, in the hospitals, uh, being extracted from the destruction around them in this in this uh, situation. Um, and so they see these horrific injuries in front of their, their eyes on their own bodies and on the bodies of the people who protect them. Uh, what, what is uh, it like, Dr. Has, uh, Dr. Tanya, providing intensive care to children in this context that you've described? And, you know, how do the children cope being injured and ill and when in many cases they've lost their, their parents, they've lost their families? Yeah, certainly. Um, so what is it like caring for them? I mean, they need to make sense of what's happening around them. Uh, one, of, one of our colleagues uh, a few days ago described uh, a child coming in with shrapnel, uh, so that's the, the fragments from the explosion in his eyes, and asking the emergency medicine doctor, uh, am I still alive or is this the voice of heaven? You know, they have to make sense of what's happening around them. As you said, many of them have been left alone. Uh, they're in the ICU, they wake up, they're injured, they're in pain, they ask the doctors for their family, they call over and over again, mama, baba, they call for the names of their siblings, and their siblings aren't there, their families yeah. aren't there, and the medical team is, is tasked with the responsibility of telling them, eventually, actually, you, are, you have been left in this world alone. Right. We know that is not a unique situation. I can give you a statement, text message after text message, of examples of children in the intensive care units, in the emergency departments that have been left alone. Right. We know as of the 11th of December that at least 17,000 children in the Gaza Strip have, have lost at least one of their parents. Alex, I mean, yeah, it, it is heartbreaking. I mean, really, Alex, let me come to you and perhaps ask you to react to what uh, Dr. Tanya was describing there and, and why. Why have we seen so many children killed in this conflict, Alex? And what is the impact? Of course, there are the injuries of, uh, of of these children, but what is the impact long term of being in such conditions, of su suffering such injuries and heartbreak? There must be a huge psychological impact and trauma. Absolutely, what Dr. Tanya just just described is horrific. It's it's unfathomable. And it, you know, I've been working in the humanitarian sector for over a decade, and what I've seen over the past seven weeks, I haven't. I, I have not seen before to this level. I mean, we know that most of the attacks where people have been killed have occurred in their own homes. And so it's no surprise that so many children have been killed. And the impact, the mental health impact is immense. I'll go back to, you know, the situation before October 7th. Mm. Save the Children conducted a study on the mental health of children in Gaza and found that the majority suffered of severe depression, nightmares, bedwetting. Uh, some of them had uh, uh, thoughts of self-harm. They had no hope for the future. But the international community hasn't sent a hope for the future. They haven't sent that message. And so it's no surprise that this is how children right. in Gaza right. feel. Yusuf, talk to us about Yusuf, the impact, about the, impact. Um, the impact on the families.
and communities of these children and how devastating it is. Uh, you've described what you know, you've lived through with your own children. What is the impact on, on the family structure in Gaza? And children are mainly the future of the society as a whole. And imagining these children of Gaza doesn't have any view in the horizon for the future. Yani it's, it's a bit foggy for them. And I think it's, it's a catastrophe in terms of families and society in general. It's, it's a catastrophic situation here. And unfortunately, the situation that we are living in and the circumstances around us doesn't give us the chance here internally to think about our children right. in a straight way. We cannot, because the, the responsibilities that we are having under this madness around us doesn't give us the chance or the ability to provide what's needed to our children. And Yusuf, trust me, we've, this heard, is not, we've heard reports, Yusuf, an, and maybe you can confirm this for us. And this is not the first time. Yeah, we've heard reports of families having to split up their children, uh, separating them so that not all of them are wiped out in one airstrike, writing their children's names on their arms. I mean, it's, it's really unfathomable. Did you ever think, having worked in, yeah, in yes, this humanitarian uh, yes, field for I, so I, long... I, I witnessed that, and... Yani, this is, was unacceptable, and I, we didn't imagine that we would live through this as a beginning. And yes, we see in these kind of cases, and unfortunately, I first day of this truce, or the humanitarian bows, I, I witnessed, for example, I'm going to tell you a story of Ala, who's 15 years old, who came from Gaza City to the south alone. He, all of his family have been wiped out from the civilian reg registration. All of them have been killed, and he is unaccompanied, unaccompanied with anyone. And currently, he's living in one of the Norway shelters. I don't wanna. I cannot even think to put myself in Ala's shoes now without anyone from his entire family living in alo alone. And imagine someone like Ala, how he's gonna think about the future. It is unimaginable. Dr. Tanya, I wanted to uh, ask you about the diseases now. WHO has warned that more people could die in Gaza from diseases than actual than the actual bombing. What sort of, of diseases are children in Gaza facing, experiencing right now, and how are they being treated? Yeah, thank you. And, and just tying that uh, to the mental health question, um, one, of, one of our colleagues in Gaza said that they felt helpless in front of children, that they cannot provide them with psychological services at the moment um, because the children aren't ready for, for psychological support when they don't have basic security, safety, basic needs such as drink and food. The living conditions at the moment are, are horrific. We know that about uh, over 80% of the Gaza uh, population is internally displaced. About half of that will be children. They are uh, living from shelter to shelter. Just this morning, I received a message from a surgical colleague in Gaza saying that they, they, she, she was um, going around uh, with uh, a team that was uh, looking at the situation in NGO and, and said that they came across a tent where a family had built this makeshift tent after going shelter to shelter and being told in every single shelter that there's not even room for them to pitch a space in the courtyard. So now they're living in the winter in a tent. She said people queue for hours for even a tin of sardines. They don't have access to clean water. This, this, this particular uh, extended family in this tent setup had uh, no access to a bathroom, no access to running clean water. 
We know that uh, uh, sanitation plants are not functioning without fuel. And as a consequence, there's no safe way to dispose of sewage. Same is true for all the dead bodies that have not been able to be buried. This is, first of all, a, a horrific image, but it's also a huge public health disaster. We know that there have been outbreaks of uh, respiratory diseases, so lung diseases. Mm -hmm. There have been air lung infections. There have been outbreaks of diarrheal disease illness. One of my colleagues was worried even about cholera, but said that there's no mechanism to confirm it's actually cholera because they have right. no testing capabilities where he is right now. In a very crowded population like this, without access to clean water or sanitation, this is... Uh, I mean, it is a public health catastrophe. Right. It will kill more people than uh, anything that we can imagine. Alex, and yeah. unfortunately, we're still at the point where we're demanding a ceasefire. I know. Yeah. And, and, and beyond the ceasefire, this is what we're left with. We're left in with a situation that will kill children and families in 1,001 ways. Alex, you, your thoughts about what Dr. Tanya said there, and why? Why are the Israelis doing this, Alex? We, we're really scared of what's to come in the next couple of weeks, what, what Dr. Tanya described in the South. I mean, horrific conditions, no access to clean water, fuel is still being limited. Um, this is something that we have continued to advocate for. You know, we, and of course, humanitarian agencies alone would not be able to solve all of these problems. We need services to resume. We need actual humanitarian access to provide assistance to children. In the West Bank, the situation is also just catastrophic. Uh, Palestinian children are the only children in the world that are systematically detained and prosecuted in military courts. The, I mean, they're, they're not treated as children. Their rights as children are not respected. Um, we've heard in the media and in other reports over the last few weeks that uh, children who were in, in, in these detention facilities faced even harsher conditions than before. We have been told by children who have been in these facilities in the past, in these in detention, that they're often beaten at the point of arrest, that they're injured, that uh, they are deprived of uh, food and water sometimes, that they are put in solitary confinement. Right. Um, so, Alex, let me ask you, what, just, what, what should the international community be doing to protect these children? What strategies are aid agencies like yours, Save the Children, considering uh, uh, that are effective, that could effective uh, protect these Palestinian children more effectively? In Gaza, the, the priority, of course, is going to be the basics, mm. access to water, food, medical assistance. But there's only so much humanitarian agencies can do. This is humanitarian assistance is not going to solve the issues. We need the international community to hold fellow uh, UN member states to account, mm. to resolutions, to human rights uh, treaties. I mean, that is where it has to start. And we need root causes to be addressed as well. Okay. In Gaza, humanitarian assistance is not going to do it all. We need services to actually resume. A yeah. ceasefire and a permanent ceasefire as well. Yusuf, that let me ask you. Yeah. Thank you, Tanya. Let me ask you, Yusuf, because we're running out of time. Yusuf, what would you like to see the international community uh, 
doing today to save the children? Those who have survived need help. How, what would you like to see happen to help these children rebuild their lives and, and have a better future? So first I want to go back to Dr. Tanya, what she mentioned about the family living in a tent. I don't know how, doctor, you are going to pick that from me, but trust me, somehow they are lucky. Thousands of people are living in the streets in this harsh weather without any means of protection or anything to cover their heads. And this is, and unfortunately, as I, I always see, we've never seen homeless people in Gaza, but now it's really, really common to see people who are sleeping in the pavement, sidewalks, and wherever you go. And a lot of people were forced to, to stay inside hospitals and witness unimaginable scenes of people who were injured and more than that. And according for the international community, unfortunately, we don't see a real action from the international community, and we don't see them standing ahead their responsibilities. And that's what was shocking for us from since since day one of that war. International community and world leaders should stand ahead their responsibilities to stop this madness now and ensure a permanent future or a, yani, a clear permanent solution for the Palestinian cause in general, especially people in Gaza. It's not all. This is not the first war escalation that we are witnessing for right. more than 17 years of siege cycle of violence that's never stopping and especially with children even when we are providing our role as a humanitarian to help maintain a better Do psychological situation for these children we found ourselves I'll... again and again in this cycle of violence yeah dr tanya i'll give you the last word how can the world help palestinian children those who've survived rebuild their lives so I think uh, most of the infrastructure to care for children has been destroyed in the Gaza Strip. Everything from 75% of the hospitals in the Gaza Strip to, to 9 out of 10 classrooms in the Gaza Strip. The protective mechanism to shelter uh, that Yusuf was talking about, the protective mechanisms for children have been destroyed. So we have a collective responsibility as humanity to rebuild those things. Yeah. I'm just going to, a medical colleague in Gaza um, sent this message yesterday saying it's, it's a hypocritical world that turns a blind eye to our children, our wounds and our pain. So I think at first we need to humanize Gaza children, Gazan children, Gazan families, the way we humanize everybody else around the world, the way we humanize Israeli children. I think we need to humanize them. All children are equal this year for World Children's Day. The theme was right for rights for children everywhere everywhere includes Palestinian children. So I'm just going to end uh, with um, a statement from a nurse uh, a couple weeks back, just to kind of really imprint the injustice of all of this. She said, my hope is to die with all the children and not leave them and leave me alone. I cannot live without them, and I do not want to die and leave them here in this unjust world. There is a deep injustice here, and I think we have a collective responsibility to ensure that children are protected everywhere, not just the children that look like us, speak like us, and are children that we can relate with. These right. children are somebody's everything, and they are exactly like the children in my family and the children mm. in your family. Indeed they are. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alexandra Saeed, Tanya Hajassan, Yusuf Hamash, thank you for joining us on Inside Story today. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Alexandra Byers, Veronica Pedrosa and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Alvaro Garan Madrid. The program was edited by Lynn Nguyen, Vanessa Connelly and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Friday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, open AI's big leaps in artificial intelligence 
open the door for more benefits and possible risks. That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.